when we talk about faith, obviously we talk about belief, what it is that we believe in, right? But I'm, I'm not so sure when we talk about faith that we give equal time to the subject of trust. And yet, if you are a Christian, that means, that, at least according to the biblical description of that word, that means that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are two uh, hallmark characteristics in the life of every true follower of Christ, again, according to what we see in Scripture. The first is that we believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who He said He was, the Son of the living God, the, the way the truth, the life. He said he was the resurrected Savior, the light of the world, the, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the Lamb of God, uh, the King of Israel. He said he was the true vine, the great I Am through whom all things were created. That is who Jesus said he was and is in John's Gospel account alone. And if you were to trek across this country and walk into church after church after church, I don't think you would have any trouble finding a lot of people, probably most of them, in those churches who would say that they believe that Jesus is who he said he was. At least, at least I hope so. But that's never really been the issue within the modern church in America anyway. There's never been a lack of people in the church who believe in Jesus. But believing in Jesus and following Jesus are not the same thing. You can believe in him and not follow him. Judas believed in Jesus, but he, he wasn't following Jesus. Satan believes that Jesus is who he says he is. In fact, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.19, believing in Jesus and following Jesus are not the same thing. To, to believe in Jesus, there must be an intellectual assent where we accept that Jesus is who he claimed to be and also that what he taught is true. To follow Jesus, there must also be a trust, a trust in that which we have come to believe about him. So being a Christian involves both believing and trusting. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to believe in him and to trust in him. So we definitely have to believe that he is who he says he is, and we have to know what we believe, and we need to be able to defend that belief, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's the first part of being a Christian. That is the first characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus is who he said he was. The second characteristic is trusting in what we believe to the point that we actually do what Jesus commanded us to do. That's being a follower of Christ. That's what it means truly to be a Christian. It's why James said faith without works is dead. It's not that our faith is dependent upon our works. Paul made that clear in Ephesians 2.9 when he said that our salvation by grace through faith is not a result of works so that no one may boast, right? So it's not that our faith is dependent upon our works. It's that our faith is characterized by our works. So when Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith, in Ephesians 2.8, there's no conflict with James's statement that faith apart from works is dead in James 2.26 because they're talking about the same faith, true faith, being a true follower of Christ. Okay, faith, our faith is a conduit through which God's grace saves us. And that true faith is always characterized by good works. So in James 2, 14 through 17, James says, What good is it, my brothers, 
if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, faith that is not characterized by us actually doing what Jesus commanded us to do is not true faith. So why don't people who believe in Jesus always do what he commanded us to do? It's because although we may, although we may believe in Jesus, we don't always trust in Jesus. And that is precisely the part of the equation that I believe is missing from much of the church in America today. Our churches are full of believers, but I'm not sure they're full of followers. Over the years, I've had a lot of people outside the church say to me, when they look inside the church, that the only difference they see between professing Christians and everyone else is what we say we believe. Otherwise, they can find no difference between us and the rest of the world in terms of how we, we actually live our lives. And I'm telling you, that is not only very convicting for me, but it, it should also make us pause and with great honesty and sobriety ask ourselves with churches on nearly every corner, why are there so many people who believe in Jesus Christ and yet stop short of following Jesus Christ? Why is it that we've no problem accepting his teachings but often, so often fail to live by them? The reason, at least in part, comes down to a lack of trust. I'm convinced that in the church today, concerning Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about him, that there is a wealth of belief and a poverty of trust. And it is essential to our faith that we recognize and rectify that in our own lives if need be, because we cannot effectively follow Jesus Christ if we don't fully trust him. There's a famous story you may have heard it about Charles Blondin. He was a great 19th century tightrope walker who walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls several times in 1860. And each time he would carry something different with him back and forth. And the story goes that one time he did it in a sack. And another time he did it on stilts. And one time on a bicycle. He did it in the dark one time. He even did it blindfolded one time. In fact, the story says that once he took a chair and a stove with him and he sat down halfway across the falls on the tightrope and cooked an omelet and ate it. All to the delight of these huge crowds that had gathered and were cheering for him. And so toward the end of his act, he grabbed a wheelbarrow and he shouted to the crowd, do you believe that I can carry a person across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And the crowds all shouted, yes, we believe you can. And so Blondin said, great, then who wants to get into the wheelbarrow? Strangely enough, there were no volunteers. It's a great illustration of the difference between merely believing in something and actually trusting in something. Okay, it is essential as Christians that we believe, yes. But if, if that is all we do, if that belief is not accompanied by a real trust, then what good is our belief? What good does it do to say that we believe if we're not willing to actually follow? Because if we cannot accomplish His will, we cannot accomplish His will, His calling, His commission, His plan for our lives if we don't trust Him enough to follow Him wherever He leads us. Besides which, 
Jesus actually didn't invite people to just believe in him. He invited people over and over and over and over again to follow him. And following him means we not only believe, but we also trust, which then begs the question, why don't we trust God? And although there are probably many different answers to that question, I think you can boil most of them all down to two primary reasons. Two obstacles that keep us from fully trusting in Jesus Christ. And in our story today, we find the first of those being played out by his disciples. So we're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week near the end of chapter 19 as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John. And we're going to talk about the first of those two obstacles that keep us from trusting him like we should. And then next week, we'll work our way through chapter 20, which will be really part two of this message. So let's jump into the story together. If you have your Bibles, if not, we'll put it up on the screen for you. As John is now giving us the particulars about the burial of Jesus, who has just been crucified. If you were here last week, we walked through that, along with two other men. And so we'll start at chapter 19 and read verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So it was the day of preparation for the coming Sabbath, and not just any Sabbath. But this particular Sabbath was what they called a high day or a special Sabbath because it, it happened to be the Sabbath of Passover week. And so it was extremely important to the Jewish religious leaders that the bodies of those crucified men be taken down off the cross because according to their own law in Deuteronomy 21-23, if anyone was put to death and hung on a tree, the body had to be taken down the same day. It, it couldn't remain hanging there overnight. Otherwise, the land, again, according to Mosaic law, would be defiled. And so the Jews are highly motivated to get the bodies of these men taken down. And yet the Romans' standard procedure for victims of crucifixion was to leave them hanging there until they died, which usually took several days. And then they would leave them on the cross even further after death until the vultures had come and eaten everything possible. As you can imagine, that was a, a, a powerful deterrent for anyone watching who might be considering a life of crime, which was precisely the point for the Romans. But on occasion, there would be some extenuating circumstance that would require or at least persuade the Romans to hasten the death of those on the cross and take them down early, which we find, by the way, uh, records of, not only in the Bible, but in other first century non-biblical historical writings. Philo of Alexandria writes about it. Flavius Josephus writes about it as well. And so it wasn't unheard of for the Romans to break the legs of those who were uh, crucified and yet still alive. The reason they would break the legs is that death by crucifixion was typically death by asphyxiation. 
because the victim was hanging there, which would put a tremendous amount of pressure on the chest cavity to the point that after a period of time they could no longer breathe. And so when people were crucified in Roman provinces in the first century, the cross would have a small platform at the level of the victim's feet attached to it so that every time the condemned person would stop breathing, they would involuntarily push up with their feet, which would open their chest cavity, and they could begin breathing again, which wasn't an act of mercy on the executioner's part. It was actually an act of torture to prolong the suffering as long as possible by preventing a quick death. But if they did need to expedite the process of, di the process of dying for some reason, as they did in this case, they would smash the victim's legs with an iron mallet, which would preclude the person on the cross, of course, from being able to push up with their feet anymore, thereby causing them to stop breathing and suffocate to death much faster, which, by the way, we also have uh, archaeological evidence of as recent as 1968. The body of a man crucified uh, in the first century just north of Jerusalem was unearthed. One of his legs was fractured and the other was broken into pieces just as the practices described in the historical documents that we have, including the Bible. And so that's what the Romans were doing here because the Jews uh, were very keen to have the bodies taken down to avoid defiling the Passover feast. Forget the fact that they just murdered the one for whom the feasts were established in the first place. True to form, throughout the Passion narrative, the Jewish leaders were far more concerned with their religious activities than they were with the very reason those activities were created to begin with. And we talked about that also a few weeks ago. So they go to Pilate and they ask him to have the men's legs broken and the bodies taken down, which he does, except that when they get to Jesus, he's already dead, which wasn't simply good fortune for him. It was in keeping with and fulfillment of the Father's plan as foretold in Psalm 3420 a thousand years earlier, which was also a fulfillment of God's law in Exodus 1246 and Numbers 912, both from well over a thousand years earlier. So I just want to pause for a moment and point out here that throughout history, and certainly since the emergence of the Christian faith, there have been people who have read the scriptures and attempted to act out what they've read and then claim to be God. But there's never been anyone apart from Jesus who not only fulfilled ancient prophecies about the Messiah in his life on earth, but also in his death. Not only were his bones not broken in fulfillment of prophecy, but just to ensure that he was already dead, the soldiers pierced his side, which fulfilled yet another ancient prophecy about the Messiah in Zechariah 12.10, over 500 years earlier, which is why John says what he says in verses 35 through 37. He's referring to himself. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, so John adds these comments because he wants to make sure that everyone who reads this understands that he personally witnessed these events to the fulfillment of God's plan, which was recorded in Scripture from long before any of these events actually occurred. In fact, 
in fact, there are many more ancient prophecies about the Messiah fulfilled in these events that we just don't have time to cover today. But John wants to remove any doubt that may be in the minds of his readers about whether or not Jesus was and is the true Messiah, which becomes quite relevant to the theme of this message as we continue in the story. So let's keep reading now. As Jesus is buried, John introduces us to some disciples who were beginning to learn the difference between believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Let's read verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So back in chapter 12, verse 42, John says, Many even of the authorities believed in him, referring to Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And no doubt these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were among those that John was describing in chapter 12. They were both members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They were both influential men of high standing and significant influence in the religious community. And Joseph was also quite wealthy, which we learn in chapter 27 of Matthew's account of this event. But notice how John describes them as secret disciples, afraid of being put out of the synagogue by their peers. Back in chapter 3 of this gospel account, we see Nicodemus sneaking out at night, which John refers to here, to see Jesus in secret. Obviously, these men believed in Jesus, but they dared not follow him, lest they lose their good standing, their popularity in the community. So they kept their beliefs, their faith to themselves, at least until now. Now they finally find the courage to publicly show their support for Jesus as Joseph uses his rank as a member of the ruling council to gain access to Pilate, which was no small feat. And then he asks for Jesus' body. And then Nicodemus shows up with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which were used not for embalming because the Jews wouldn't remove internal organs and then fill the space with spices as the Egyptians did. But the Jews would turn the myrrh into a powder and they would mix it with the aloes. And then after wrapping the body in a linen shroud, they would pack that ointment they had made around the bodies and under the bodies really for the sole purpose of keeping the smell, the, the stench of a rotting corpse from becoming unbearable. The point is, this was a big deal and a lot of work. It's not something you could very easily do in secret. And between petitioning the Roman governor Pilate for Jesus' body and then preparing his body for burial, these men had finally taken a definitive stand, if, if not to trust Jesus in his life, to at least honor him in his death. 
And so they take him to an unused rich man's tomb, which we read both in Matthew 27 and in non-biblical sources as well. Uh, there are apocryphal writings like the Gospel of Peter in chapter 24, historical writings that are not biblical, but they're historical, which tell us that this was Joseph of Arimathea's personal tomb, which fulfills, by the way, another centuries-old prophecy from Isaiah 53.9. And then again, according to Jewish burial customs, they prepare his body and they lay it to rest, which not only served a purpose in God's providential plan for the Christ, that his prophetic word would be fulfilled to a T, but it was also, it was a watershed moment for these two men who could not find it within themselves to trust Jesus enough during his life to openly follow him, but now realizing in his death that following Jesus was so much more important than worrying about what anyone else thought of them. It really is both a beautiful picture of a spiritual awakening for these two men and at the same time a sad commentary on an extraordinary opportunity lost. They had Jesus in the flesh right there with them. Yet the trust that they should have found in him was overshadowed by their own fear, which has always been one of the great obstacles to trusting God. Fear can cripple us and keep us from moving forward. In fact, keep us from moving at all because we don't want to lose what we have. Okay? For the most part, fear is always associated with loss. The two are inextricably linked. Think about the things that you fear. They generally relate to something we desperately do not want to lose. We fear sickness because we don't want to lose our health. We fear conflict because we don't want to lose our relationships. We fear losing our job, our house, losing our status, our position. We fear losing respect, losing our security, losing our safety. When you think about whatever it is that you most fear, it probably relates to something that you do not want to lose which was the case with these two disciples. The fear of what they would lose by following Jesus was greater than their trust in what they would gain by following Jesus. They cared more about what they already had than what they could have had if they just trusted Jesus enough to follow him. So they chose not to openly follow him to keep from losing their status in the community. Now, a good prosperity preacher will tell you that there is nothing to lose by following Jesus. That following him means we gain everything and we lose nothing. Which sounds really great, except that it's not true. When we decide to fully trust Jesus Christ with our lives, listen, there are very real consequences that follow. Lots of wonderful, amazing, Life-altering benefits, yes, but make no mistake, there is loss, significant loss, that comes with the decision to follow Jesus Christ. Just after describing all of the things that he had obtained in this life that gave him status and power and influence, everything that the world respects in people, the Apostle Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Paul completely gave up his former life to follow Jesus Christ because he trusted in the word of God that says what we stand to gain far outweighs everything that we will have to give up when we follow him. Now listen, it wasn't that Paul enjoyed the loss. No one does. No one does, which is exactly why we have to trust him if we're going to follow him because once you take that first step, everything begins to change as he leads you on a journey that will ultimately cost you everything you have. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking we have nothing to lose by following Jesus because the truth is there's much to lose when we follow him. But when we trust him enough to follow him anyway, we not only gain eternal benefits, but also the present reality of living and walking through every single day of this life in the perfect will of God, which means we're fulfilling the exact purpose for which he created us. And I'm telling you, even with all that we have to give up, there is no better life than the one that satisfies the perfect purpose for which it was created. Amen. There's no better life than that. And yet there are a lot of believers who are not living in the perfect will that he created them for because of fear. So how do we combat fear? Well, the short answer is through love. 1 John 4.18, John said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. He didn't, he didn't say the world's love, some version of love. He said, perfect love casts out fear. And the love of Christ is the remedy to fear. And obviously, John understood that. Paul understood it as well. In Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, he prayed for the Christians in Ephesus that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that's important, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in Romans 8, 35 through 39, he says, So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who, what, loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God that casts out all fear. The love of God that enables us to trust Him. The love of God that enables us to follow Him. That perfect love 
that casts out all our fear. That love is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how do we find communion in him and with Christ Jesus, our Lord? Ephesians 3.16, we just read it. Through his spirit in your inner being. And just, case, and just in case you're not convinced, Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And the word hope in that verse in the ancient Greek is the word elpes, which is a joyful and confident expectation of good. It's the very opposite of fear. So when we commune with Christ and thereby His love by way of His Spirit that is inside every believer, fear is vanquished. And it's replaced with hope and joy and confidence which is something we're going to talk about more next week because the chapter, uh, the next chapter deals with the presence of Christ and how that relates to the trust that we need to be able to follow Him in part two of the message. But one more thing for today, and this is a really important point of clarification that might change the way you understand God's love, the love that we must commune with and live in if we are to trust without fear. When Paul talks about experiencing the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3.19. And then when he talks about the love of Christ in, in Romans 8.35, when he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then in Romans 8.39, when he talks about the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then in Romans 5.5, when he says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Listen, it is paramount if we're to fully grasp this love of God that Paul keeps talking about, it is crucial that we understand that in every single one of these passages, when Paul talks about the love of God, he is not talking about our love for God. He's talking about God's love for us. Let that sink in a minute. Because once you realize that our ability to experience the perfect love of God that casts out all fear once you realize that it has nothing to do with our ability or effort to love Him and everything to do with His love for us, that changes everything. Because although we're quite capable of screwing up our love for Him, there's absolutely nothing that we can do Nothing that we can do to compromise His love for us. Paul made it abundantly clear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? No. So none of our problems, no matter how bad they get, can separate us from His perfect love that casts out all fear. What about distress? Paul says no. So there's no amount of struggle or strife or trouble in your life that can separate us from His perfect love that casts out all fear. What about persecution when the world hates us, which they're going to? Jesus promised us that. Or nakedness or danger. What about lack? What about all the risk that we take when we follow Him? What about the sword, even violence? Paul says, no, 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 no. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, the perfect love that casts out all fear. So look, there's no mountain to climb. 
There's no badge to earn. There's no scorecard to check off. There's no scale to see if our good deeds outweigh the bad. There is no merit that we can ever achieve by our own effort that can ever, in any way, whatsoever, earn us His love. Because He already paid the bill. He paid the bill when He let them nail Him to a cross, and then they stood and watched His blood soak the ground beneath it as He gave His very life to prove His perfect love for us. And so for us, it's simply a matter of experiencing that love as we commune with His Spirit who resides in us, which again we'll talk more about next week. The point for today is that if more believers really understood and accepted this, I think there would be a lot more believers who were also followers. Because the barrier to trusting God that is fear would be removed. Right? Because no matter how much the world may hate you for following Him, there's no fear when you understand how much greater His love for you actually is. And no, no matter how much status or position or respect from the world that you may lose for following Him, there's no fear when according to the riches of His glory, as Paul puts it, He grants to you strength with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And so no matter how much we have to give up to follow Jesus Christ, there is no fear once you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, His love for us is so much greater than anything we could ever hope to gain or hold on to in this world. And it's not that our love for Him and each other doesn't matter at all. It does. It matters a great deal. But that love that we have for Him and for each other is rooted and grounded in His love for us. Which means that we then, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, along with Paul, we are now able to claim the title more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're more than conquerors, meaning we can live without fear because of His perfect love for us. Not because of our effort or any merit that we've achieved. Listen to how James Vaughn explains it. He says, The very same principle, which is thus embodied in the death and sufferings of Christ, operates in the experience of every believer. Every man who is in earnest about his salvation has found, and the more earnest he is, the more he has found it, that he is placed to contend not only with flesh and blood, but also with Satan. In this great contest, what is God's undertaking for his people? That they shall overcome? More than that, the power of Christ that is in you shall do what the presence of Christ always did when he walked the earth. Whenever walking this earth an evil spirit met Christ, the evil spirit was afraid, and they shall be afraid of you more than conquerors. You see, there, there should be fear associated with being a Christian, but not on our part. 
Just as the demons believe and shudder when Jesus shows up, they should be afraid of every Christian because of the hope and joy and confidence and power that we live in and walk in every day because we are actually doing what Jesus commanded us to do by the Spirit of Christ who loves us, who is within us. But that will require more than just believing. It means we have to follow him. And following him demands our trust. We have to trust in him. Because, listen, following Jesus is going to mean losing some things. It may mean that we're not always liked by everyone. It will probably mean taking a stand from time to time that the world won't understand or approve of. It will most definitely mean laying down your very life for others. But listen, when you trust God enough to follow Him everywhere He leads you, you'll end up living the life that you were created for. A life that overcomes everything you've had to give up. A life that conquers every fear and grows through every failure. A life that realizes your God-given potential as you live out each day with a profound sense of purpose and satisfaction knowing that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And that, that is a life worth trusting God for. Let's pray.